0: Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. I'm Mike Goldsworthy, and it is a gift to have you spend some time hanging out with us here. And I think we're going to, for a fun treat with our conversation today, I get to talk to Scott McKnight, who, what we're talking about today, he has like 8,000 books coming out right now. But what we're talking about today is a New Testament translation he has coming out. It's called Second Testament. It releases in early June. And at one point in our conversation, he calls it a crunchy and clunky translation, which is super fun. Um, uh, I've never interviewed somebody on a Bible translation before, so that was fun. We don't get into the weeds. For those of you that want in the weeds on that stuff, sorry. For those of you that are grateful for that you are welcome but it's fun getting to talk to him a bit about like some of the choices that he makes i tell him at one point one of my uh, favorite translations that he does that just kind of like hit me and it caused some things that i was reading in his translation to just hit me in some fresh ways so we talk a bit about that uh and we spend a little time catching up before we get there but if you don't know who scott mcknight is he is a uh New Testament theologian he currently is the Julius R. Manti chair of New Testament and Northern Seminary He has written all kinds of books Jesus Creed Blue Parakeet King Jesus Gospel, a church called Tove uh, he's got a revelation book that came out recently that we briefly mentioned in there um, I got to introduce him one time at an event that we were both at and I remember getting to say um, NT Wright endorsed one of your books saying that you are one of the most significant New Testament scholars in America. And I said, how does it feel to have that qualifier in America? Anyway, Scott is fun. He's brilliant. He pumps out all kinds of stuff. And he is super, super generous. And he is generous with his time here. So uh, we'll turn it over to our conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight. Friends, I am excited to introduce you to Dr. Scott McKnight. And Scott, it's uh, just a real privilege to have you on here. I've been looking for an opportunity for us to get to hang out here.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. It's, uh, I remember very fondly the first time I met you and spoke at your church. Uh, long it a, a long, long time, time ago.
0: It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Um, I've gotten old since then. You look yeah. the same. So I oh, think that's, I that. that's bearing well for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've gotten to connect several times since then in various yeah. uh, situations, which has been honestly just such a gift for me. And uh for folks who don't know you, my guess is that the vast majority of folks listening to this do. But for those who don't, Uh, You are, tell me if I pronounce this right, the Julius R. Manti Chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary.
1: Yes, Julius Manti was a Greek scholar. He wrote a famous book with a guy named Dana, uh, Dana, last name was Dana, um, on syntax in the New Testament. And I read it when I was in college. And it was a textbook when I was in seminary, but it's no longer used. So um i'm the manty of dana and Manti for those who are old enough to remember learning their greek that way but people of my age all know who dana and manty are so
0: uh, that's me i did not have to engage in that in my work <laughs> uh and then you've written i don't even know how many books you've written but i was thinking just like some of the the ones for me that had been significant were jesus creed Blue Parakeet, that's what you came out and spoke at our church, however long ago that was, on the Blue Parakeet. King Jesus Gospel was fantastic. And then uh, recently with your daughter, you wrote A Church Called Tove, which was wonderful as well. And then all kinds of obviously like scholarly works you've put out there. You you do this interesting intersection, I think, of uh, doing lots of scholarly work, and you're obviously also rooted in the church. And But you're not just like in your local church, you're putting out work that is more mainstream than a lot of scholars do. So you're kind of putting things out at these multiple levels. And um, I find it like so helpful in the intersection of all that. So interesting.
1: It's very interesting, Mike. I just submitted a manuscript proposal, a book idea to, well, it's just a sketch to a friend of mine who's an editor. And he writes me back and he says, there are three books here. He said, the first first section is your blogger voice. He said, the second section is um, sort of a researcher voice. And the third one is a little bit more of a accessible scholarship voice. He says, you're going to have to figure out which one of these voices you want me to look at. So Yeah. So then he said, he gave me a test. I had to answer eight questions. Then he says, I know who this book is. This is more of an academic book. So let's let's keep it there. So which one, because like I imagine you're at the
0: point in your work where you get to uh, pick and choose a bit of like what you want to engage in. What kind of voice is most interesting to you right now?
1: Well, um, I'm very keen on writing for the church, for pastors who are busy, who aren't going to read a 600 page book on Christology or the Doctrine of Grace. I'm much uh, that's that's my audience that I'm really focusing on. But sometimes you have to kind of dig in and write a more academic thing, and then you can sp- spin it out into a couple more accessible things. But um, I, I made a commitment way back about t- 2000 that I wanted to learn to write for the church, and that's what Jesus' Creed uh, really taught me. Uh, and I still write some academic stuff, but I always—I feel like I write— sometimes I start writing an academic thing, and then I— knock out all the footnotes and all the technicalities and make it more accessible like the the king jesus gospel book was originally like there was the chapter there's one chapter in there that was originally about 85 to 90 pages and it turned into (laughs) about 12. and it was it had all these footnotes and technical discussions and uh, my editor at the time says to me you're going to have to make a decision whether you want people to read this book or not And uh, so I knocked it all down into this about 90 pages. I knocked down into uh, 12 pages. I mean, does that like hurt your
0: scholar's heart when
1: you have to do that? uh, Sometimes. Yeah. But um, I'm not really keen on trying to impress the academic community the way I was when I was a young professor. Sure. Uh, I'm trying to communicate to the church my biggest uh, my biggest joys are when lay people read a book that I know was a stretch for them that I, you know, I think my natural audience is the is the pastor, the person who's in the church who preaches, not necessarily Greek and Hebrew stuff. Sure. But um, so that's my natural audience. And, uh, you know, I'm really thrilled when uh, lay people can read what I write and say, this really makes sense. Like this new book on Revelation. Ordinary people are reading it and telling me they, they really like it. So that's, that's that's what I'm trying to do. I
0: love that. And um, we're not getting to talk about that today, and I haven't gotten to read that one yet, but I've been super fascinated by the things that I have seen people writing about it and yeah. the accessibility of it and helping people to, en- like, um, the, the, my experience in the church was that the mainstream view that people had of how to engage Revelation was so far removed from the way that most scholars and most of church history would think about revelation that like it would always upset people to try and show them different. So anyways, when someone like you is offering somebody that's something helpful and accessible, both for pastors who are preaching that, but people in the church who are studying it, like it's such a gift.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. That's what I'm trying to do. Try to make it accessible. It's not easy. And a lot of academics think it's it's that's the easy part that's the hardest way to write hmm. is to make it clear to everybody
0: hmm. well you've definitely gotten really good at that i think like even uh, as i've read your books over the years the progression from i was reading some of the stuff before jesus creed i think it was a community called atonement before jesus creed yeah um and then there was something about you had a book about the kingdom, I think, that was before that as well that I had picked up.
1: A New Vision for Israel? Yes. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And to like even uh, read your progression as an author for this wide audience has been fun to watch you like, uh, uh, get that muscle in shape in a way where it's like you pump these things out left and right. I don't even understand how you pump out as much content as you do, but it's um, gotten so... like. Jesus Creed was obviously fantastic and won awards, but it's even like your voice has gotten clearer and more accessible. I feel like. Yeah,
1: yeah. Thank you. Well, um, I wrote the Joseph chapter in Jesus Creed. Uh, I think like seventeen times. Oh gosh. To, to get to where, to get to where I I'd, I'd write it. At one time it was thirty-five page chapter, and uh, at one time Chris said, "This this isn't even interesting." Well <laughs> then, and then I. I thought, well, I'll cut it in half, and then I realized I'm going to have to cut this into about a tenth of of the length, and that's that, it. Ended up being 1,200 page chapters, and it took me a long time to find that rhythm and and the pace for each chapter. And I had a wonderful editor who would uh, send me back the manuscript, just have whole pages crossed out, saying, "We don't need this. Hmm. Get rid of this." You know, I, I spent a week on that one, you know, so. Yeah, it's work. That's it. Writing is work.
0: Yeah. Well, you put out a lot, and the the thing that we're here to talk about today is that you have a New Testament translation coming out. Yeah. Uh, it's called uh, the Second Testament. It's releasing in June and early June. Uh, and you know, normally when I interview somebody on here, I try to read their whole book before we talk. So I've got like, so I'm actually. And, you know, that was a little difficult with this. I've I've read the book before, but I felt like I needed to, like, at least read it some again. And even, like, how do we talk about the Bible here in a few minutes together and yeah. the way that, like, you approach it and stuff? But so I think there's probably, like, 14 different things that we could talk about here. But I was, I, I just wanted to start with, like, what intrigued you about doing a New Testament translation? Like, there's 8,000 of them out there already, and um, like, why did you feel this compulsion to want to do that? What were you contributing?
1: Well, um, Tom Wright uh, wrote, wrote I think he's called The Bible for Everyone or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. And for each one of those uh, books, Tom would begin the day by translating the passage and then he would write a little commentary. That's how he began his day for, what, two or four or five years. I know, I know he wrote the book of Hebrews in one week. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that was an amazing one. But uh, he's pretty quick. Um, and it was very, it was an electric translation. And they published it as the Kingdom New Testament. Then I heard that they had contracted John Gay to write the Bible for everyone on the Old Testament. And John was asked to translate as well. So I had actually not seen any of John Gay's um, Bible for everyone series. I, and I'm not sure I've seen that many volumes of it even then. But um, then in England, they published those two translations together. So I bought a copy of the English translation And it was not easy to get because it was only available in the United Kingdom. So then the United States, um, and I I was using it, not not that much, but I was using it. Then the United States University published John Goldingay's translation separately because Zondervan owned the rights to the Kingdom New Testament. So they didn't own rights to the Old Testament. They owned rights to the New Testament. So when I saw Goldingay's, the publisher uh, actually a friend who was a former student of mine, gave me a copy of it. Said, I want to know what you think of this. And I saw him several months later and I said, I've read the whole thing. And I said, this is what I'll tell you. I love Golden Gay and I love Tom Wright, but those two translations don't belong together. Huh. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, Tom's is so, uh, it's not paraphrastic, but it's so dynamic as a translation. It puts into English idioms what is found in Greek, and Golden Gate transliterates Hebrew names uh, so much so at times you don't, you don't even know where this place is, and they don't have maps that correspond to the names that he uses in the Bible. Yeah, um, and it was uh, more literal, more wooden, and basically it would be called a formal. A formal translation versus a dynamic translation. So he said, what do you mean? I said, well, Golden Gay has a completely different theory of translation that he's following than Tom Wright. They said, what do you think we should do? I said, well, I I said, I think if you're going to publish the Second Testament, the First Testament, I said, I think you need a Second Testament of someone who wants to follow a similar theory. So he looks at me, he says, would you do it? And I said, Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'd love to do that. Mostly because we're so good at the dynamic side of translation that we no longer feel the Greek text itself. We no longer even think that this text was originally written in Greek. It it just sounds so Englishy. Sure. Uh, So I thought, I'm going to try to give people a much closer experience to the Greek text itself rather than to an English dynamic translation. So I, I am willing to say that my translation is the most formal wooden translation ever produced in the English language. <laughs> That's <laughs> very bold. Well, it is, I love there's that. nothing <laughs> like it. Uh, you know, uh, I, there's a thing in Greek called a genitive absolute. Okay. All right. It begins, it's sort of like at the beginning of a paragraph or sentence and doesn't belong to the sentence itself it's just on its own it's that's what they mean by absolute and i put three dots at the end of it so to make readers realize this is a complete thought now we're going to move to something else interesting and you'll never find this in english translations the niv will translate it as something like when he was entering the house he said and i'll have he entered the house three dots he said just to, just to get that separation, that that yeah. moment where it's not it's not connected.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I appreciate when I've been reading it the um, the way passages that are familiar to me hit me different because of some of your translation choices, and I've enjoyed translations recently. And this um, might be a little bit of the nerd in me, but ones that are. Uh, transliterating the formal names and locations just because like it forces me to stop and engage it a bit differently. Like I think, um, it, oh, Sarah Rudin does that with her Gospels translation. Yeah. Yeah. And then experiencing that in yours as well. Like, uh I appreciate so much a dynamic translation, especially for a person who doesn't want to like that, that wants to be able to just engage it and feel like they are in it and that the bible is meant for them and then there's something different about a translation like this that like you're familiar with the text and it hits you so differently reading it in this kind of way and I don't know like I know enough greek to be dangerous I don't know enough greek to like do actual work with it like I know enough to like engage with like um the tools to be able to you know get in lagos and know what I'm doing there enough but so I, I intentionally, in fact, didn't do my MDiv. I did an MA instead, so I could avoid languages. So I didn't get to experience reading it in the Greek in a way that it would hit me like this. So there's something about getting to engage it in English in that way that it hits me differently that I so have appreciated and um, and find myself really even shocked by some of the ways that a few parts of it hit me.
1: You know, well, thanks, Mike. That that's uh, the most common statement made to me when people read any of the translation. And I often put it on Sunday on my substack. I put the gospel passage in Greek, uh, in, the, in the new translation. And this is a very common response, is that it struck me differently. There was, uh, there was a word there, or a couple words and a sentence that I thought, I've never read this verse in my life before. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking, what, what was the other translation? When, when I can get you to slow down, and to ask questions and to say, how else have I understood this? I've co- I feel like I have won. Hmm. That's what my goal is, is to slow people down. And you're right. I transliterate names. It's Johannes, It's Jesus. Uh, it's Jacobos, not James. Uh, you know, all these names, Mariam. Uh, so transliterating names was important because that was the person's name not our anglicized version of the name and it draws us back to the original audience. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good reminder that they lived in a different time, a different place, a different location than where we yeah. are. Yeah. Um, well, I want to, maybe before, I wanted to ask you about a couple of translation choices. I don't want to get too far in the weeds because I'll leave that for smarter folks to talk to you about, but I'm kind of curious about a few things in even the the act of doing this translation. One of them is we're seeing more of these individual translations come about, right? Like you were talking about Tom Wright's and Golden Gay's. Golden Gay, by the way, told me one time that he's like, you know, NT Wright gets to be New Testament right. Like, cause NT, like I want to be OT Golden Gay with like trying to get people to call him OT Golden Gay. I, I like, I like that. Um Uh, Sarah Rudin's David Bentley Hart's we've got these like translations were often done by committee and we still see a lot of those but we're seeing this this rise of these individual translations and I'm kind of curious on your thought on like why are we seeing that what's the advantage of that what's maybe disadvantages of that
1: yeah um, I guess for me this when I was in high school, I've, I became aware of some English translations by individuals like J. B. Phillips. Hmm. I think there was a guy named Williams' translation too uh, that my father had, and I would read them. Uh, I wasn't aware of of the question that you're asking, but um, then it kind of went into these committees, and everybody bought into, say, the NIV, which came out in the seventies, and I was in college when these came out, and I was at Zondervan one day, and they gave us the Gospel of John. It was just published. Then it was the New Testament. Then a couple of years later, the whole Old Testament was bound, and they were bound together. So I was in seminary by the time the whole NIV came out. Then the ESV came out. So these are all committee productions. But uh, I guess in the modern era, um, I'm thinking it was maybe Eugene Peterson. Sure. Uh, who sort of uh, did his own. And um, With the message. it's quite a privilege, Mike, to be honest, for a publisher sure. to come to someone and say, would you like to translate the New Testament? So, you know, I, I jumped at the opportunity because, yes, of course I would like to do that. It's, it's fun. It, I get to spend my time studying the Bible and translating, and uh, people will use it forever because hmm. everybody uses translations. Um, I don't, and David Bentley Hart, Sarah Rudin is, is such a translator. Um, I've read her Gospels very carefully, uh, and I find it quite interesting. Um, but I, I think it's just because publishers know that, um, I guess they know that translations sell, and they know that uh, some people's translations or ideas are of enough interest that people will buy it. And I, I think that's part of what what happened. So I considered it quite a privilege to be uh, to be asked. Yeah, I didn't I didn't go to to the editor at university for that reason. I hadn't even thought of translating it sure. myself. but I had thought that we need one like that. He said, why don't you do it? And I said,
0: yeah, okay, I will. Sure. I mean, I can see my experience, especially after reading now several translations that are done by an individual, there's a different kind of um, energy with them, maybe as a way of saying it, then uh, uh, a translation by committee can certainly be helpful. I think where you've got a group of people who are all deciding together, is this the best way to understand this? And at the same time, it feels like it can also potentially lose some of its edge. And it feels to me like, uh, like, well, talking about your translation in
1: particular, like some of that edge feels like it's back that's supposed to be there. Mike, that's a really good observation. I wish I had that in my introduction, but I, I wouldn't want to advertise that. But what what happens in a committee is a consensus, or at least a compromise. All right, if you were in the a committee of translation, let's say the NIV, the ESV, the NLT. And I've worked on the NLT. I did Luke. Uh, I participated in the Luke translation of the NLT. Um, If you were to suggest for the kingdom of God,
0: empire. That's what I wanted to talk to you about, too. There'll
1: be a a conversation about it, but there's no way they're going to go in that direction. And I thought, well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. (laughs) And you know who I heard this from first? Brian McLaren. Yeah. Way back when he wrote that secret message of God. He said that and I thought, yes, that's what Basilea would have referred to for many people, the Greek word for kingdom. So but that's that's what happens. It becomes a compromise, a consensus, a discussion. And therefore, the committee translations are always safe. Individuals get to go for it. And at times, I clearly chose marginal or what you would call minority translations, you know, um, you can find the word empire as a gloss to the Greek word that we normally translate kingdom in commentaries else- elsewhere, but no one puts it in. It's a minority translation. It's just not going to be the dominant idea. And I wanted, when everybody goes with the dominant idea, we lose the opportunity for the minority uh, suggestions that, that arise. And these different translations at times provoke us into thinking, what, how would I translate it? And the first time I went to InterVarsity Editor, I said, I don't know about Golden Gate translating, let's say, uh, a kosher with the word taboo. And he said, you remember it, don't you? I said, yeah, I guess he wins. He, he got my attention with that translation. And that's, that's sort of what at times i try to do. So go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, tell me a bit about the choice of empire because that was that was the first one that I read that like hit me. And yeah. um, I I wrote down here, I had grabbed um, the portion of the Lord's Prayer that you translate as your empire come, your will become reality as in heaven, so on the land. There are so many things within that that just like hit me differently. I'm so... Yeah. Curious about like, not just that it was a minority view that would hit us differently, but why even why would you choose empire particularly?
1: Yeah. Well, look, there's a there's a big there's a big category that Jesus uses and and the category is kingdom, but he glosses it with the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Okay, All other kingdoms are kingdoms of men. There is a kingdom of God and all other kingdoms are kingdoms of men. And Jesus is contrasting his kingdom with all other kingdoms. Jesus lives in Galilee. Galilee is run through Sepphorus, Tiberius, by a man named Herod Antipas. Antipas represents Tiberius in, the city, in Galilee. So Rome is very much on the mind. And they had an, an empire, imperium, the Latin word. So I wanted, to, I wanted to use that word because I thought it evoked the contrast between God's rule in this world and Roman or, let's say, the most dominant tyrannical power on earth at the time. And this will resonate throughout the world today when anybody thinks that their president or their government is imperial, that has that empire mentality about it. And a lot of countries have this today. Hmm. Uh, so we live in a country that has some empire dimensions. And one of my students, who's a good Greek student, said to me, well, that's going to get you in trouble. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> and I said, well, I hope I hope it gets people's attention. So I'm glad. But I, I saw it as an opportunity to take a minority translation. The Greek word basileia. Can just mean a local kingdom, and at times it does, but um, it also will evoke the Roman Empire. And uh, something you may have noticed every time I I did everything I could to find a translation of a Greek word that would always be the same every time that Greek word appeared. Hmm. That was really hard to do, and I cannot tell you the number of times. I had to stop and go change 63 different references sure. from one translation to another. So it was a big, it was a big, and I did some global changes that really screwed things up too. <laughs> and once you make a global change, you can't undo it. So yeah. 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 To go find them.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I loved that one in particular because of the way it forces you to um, have to engage with the reality of what Jesus is saying and what it, what, uh the kingdom of god uh using the other translations what it is confronting and our allegiances that it's confronting and our alliances and yeah. all of all of sort of like what comes with that word and how charged it was and how charged it should be like um i yeah i loved i love that choice i was trying to look okay. up I,
1: okay here's another thing though when we always translate basileia that's the greek word kingdom Before long, the word kingdom doesn't mean anything because we use it all the time. Yes. So familiarity was the biggest problem I had in translating. I had to fight to resist my own familiar reading of the Bible with what I was seeing in the Greek text. And there were times when I did exactly what scribes did. I saw something in Mark and I made it the equivalent, but with slight variations that are found in Matthew, because I was so familiar. I'd be looking at the Greek and I would not even be seeing the Greek because I'm so familiar with that. Yeah. So empire is something that's also very unfamiliar. So it's, sh- you know, like you said, it can shock you into saying, whoa, that's really a, a change of a translation.
0: What were some? Were, did you have other choices that you made that feel like similar to that? That feel a bit like confrontive or shocking, or that move us out of familiarity.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. for For instance, I never use the word justify or justification. Yeah. Um, I don't use the word apostle. Yeah, that's right. I, I use commissioner. Commissioner for disciples was it apprentice? Apprentice for disciples. Because we're so familiar, and these words are so catchy today, that we impute all kinds of meanings to them that are not there. And like a mathetes, a disciple, an apprentice is someone who is learning from a master. Well, that's that's a basic idea, but it just doesn't show up that much when we use the word disciple. We filled it with our own discipleship theories. Mm-hmm. So. There's a a number of these, but one of my favorites was to avoid the word justification. What do you use for justification? I don't remember. Um, I use some version of the word right. Okay. And even as a verb writing or righted, he righted the ship. Okay. Okay. Uh, That sort of thing. So I I use that. And and in that, I am more formal than any translation that is out Hmm. there on that one.
0: I mean, I feel like that's really helpful, especially as you think about discussions of what Paul is saying happens uh, yeah. in Christ, like in uh, the whole conversation that as yes, we don't need to get into much here, but of, um, uh, 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 of our uh, new perspective on Paul and yeah. all of that sort of work some of that conversation really
1: is about um, English translations, right? Exactly right. That's right. And the theology that has developed around a translation, an English word, rather than the ancient world. So uh, justification has become something about uh, having something imputed to you. Uh, You know, Christ's righteousness in Christian Protestant Reformed theology But if I just say Jesus righted us or made us right, it sort of leaves you hanging thinking, well, that doesn't quite say all that I thought of with the word justification. I'm thinking, right, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, and while we're going down the list, I
0: appreciated, I think it was uh, salvation used deliverance. Yeah. Yeah. Which. I appreciate it so much because that's another one that we have become so common and we associate all this stuff with it yeah. and to move it out of just some sort of like metaphysical, ethereal thing that happens, uh, into something that is potentially more tangible that yep. potentially is like, what am I being delivered from? And what am yeah. I like? Um, uh, Oh, and with, uh, I think it was faith that you're using allegiance. Yeah.
1: Which, now there's one, Mike. This is a good one. This one was really hard because I'm, I really thought Matthew Bates when he came out, Salvation by Allegiance Alone or whatever mm-hmm. something like Justification by Allegiance. Um, I thought I thought he was totally right. Teresa Morgan is a scholar at Oxford. She she demonstrated this is what the word means many times, and when it's connected to Jesus as the King, Allegiance is the proper thing. But I could not keep it the same. Okay. there I used three different words. um, Trust. I use allegiance for ongoing trust when I think the text clearly implies um, a life of trusting. Hmm. And then when it refers to what we believe, which only occurs a few times, I use the word the faith. So I use three different words for that. And I, I pondered that one deep and hard. And I just, I I couldn't make one word work and I wasn't going to let it be believe or faith. But uh, at times I could not tell in the text whether it meant trust or allegiance. And so I, I admit, I flipped the coin and just varied at times on the ones I wasn't sure of. I said, it'd be allegiance. It could be trust. I did allegiance last time. I'll do trust this time.
0: I love that for so many reasons, but one of which is for any folks that are listening that have never engaged in, in understanding how translations are done or whatever to realize like that that's the reality sometimes is that it's like, uh, I can't it, it's a bit unclear as to what exactly mm-hmm. this is and this is my best guess at it or a literal flip of the coin because it could go either direction. like um, I think
1: that's really yeah. helpful. Yeah, it, 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 at times we don't, and when when the word can go into two different English words, um, and you can't always tell, then you you have to make a decision. But if you always make the same decision, you're no longer making a decision based on context. And are we given the author the flexibility with that term that we could, if we change it ourselves and just keep it going back and forth, to give readers? that sense that it could be trust, it could be allegiance. So mm. that's what I did. I love that.
0: Uh, I'm kind of curious when you imagine how folks are using this. Are you imagining this is something that people are using for more rigorous study? Are you imagining people are doing sort of like devotional kind of work with it? Like, how do you imagine people are engaging with this translation?
1: Well, John, uh, I I read John Golden Gay's introduction to the First Testament probably 15 times. Hmm. Uh, over the over the two years of my translating the, the New Testament, and since then I've read it once or twice, and before I read it right away. Um, the the people who are going to read this are primarily going to be first of all people who are familiar with the New Testament. This isn't for beginners. Uh, the, the, you know, let's say a, a brand new believer decides to read the New Testament, they, they might look at me and think, what in the world is, why can't this guy write English? All right, the, the second thing is, it's, um, I don't imagine that it will be used in the pulpit as a, let's say, a reading the text publicly. Um, I will try this and I'll get by with it because it's me, but most people would not. So I, I look at it as a second translation option or for a serious student who, who wants to read through the whole New Testament in a different version, which some people read a different translation almost every year. But also, Mike, I, I imagined at times Greek students who are having to translate a passage sure, saying, wow, this really helps because he puts it in the same word order as much as possible and all that. So, so I, I, I tried to keep all those audiences in mind as I was doing it.
0: Yeah. I actually used, it. I was preaching at a church out in your area, maybe about a month ago, out in uh, Chicagoland. And uh, I used it as a second text because I found it, again, like what I was saying earlier, really helpful to like, we did the NIV. And then as I was teaching through a portion of it, I was like, let's look at this other way. Let's look at how Scott translates this part of it so that you get the impact of um, what's what's being said here. Because I don't, yeah. think, uh, I don't think you get like the um, the impact of what Jesus is is saying here.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I hope I hope it. Let's say you read the NIV or the our NRSV, which I have the new one. Just I just got a full copy of it with a leather version, NRSV U E they call it. Yes. NRSV U, updated edition. I think that's kind of corny myself, but it's a nice translation. And um, then you want. A slightly different something that might provoke you to think about something else yeah that's where i think the uh, the second testament will come in uh useful to people yeah well
0: i would love to hear your thoughts on um a lot of the folks that listen to this fit into a couple of categories that there are people who are post-evangelical pastors who are leading churches trying to evangelicalism doesn't fit them for various reasons and they're leading churches then in this post-evangelical space but then there's a number of folks that are in some phase of deconstruction and reconstruction of their faith, and I have found for many of those folks, the Bible has become difficult for them to engage because of sometimes maybe ways it's been used against them to harm them, or maybe because it is associated with um, with experiences that they are still trying to work through. And so it's been... and. So along with that, we're also seeing a massive like disengagement with the scriptures as a whole, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm kind of curious about like, what do you see maybe culturally lost by our disengagement with the scriptures? What like would be a word that you would offer to folks that are having some, um, issues with re-engaging it?
1: Well, this is a big issue, Mike, and, uh. I'm actually writing a book right now with a student of mine on, we're calling it The Prophetic Voice of Deconstruction. Okay. Well, don't tell anybody about it. No, no, no. We This isn't public. <laughs> so, um, I would say if the Bible has been weaponized about people, no translation is probably going to do much mm-hmm. much of the, the work of healing. Um, so, Private reading of the Bible might give them an opportunity to read the Gospels. What we find is those who are on the path of deconstruction, reconstruction often um, find their point of contact with Jesus in the Gospels. They like Jesus. They're tired of the church. And I think my translation will give people a fresh perspective on Jesus, because it's going to use different terms. And it's going to it's going to be clunky. My one of my editors at InterVarsity called it crunchy. And I, I really like that that term. It's not it's not smooth like the NIV. And as I'm writing these uh, these little books that I'm writing on Bible study, everyday Bible study, uh, I cannot believe the number of times I disagree with the NIV hmm. where I'm reading and I'm thinking, no, you, you can't do that here. That's just not fair. And uh, so I'm trying to leave, let's say, the bold edges of the the New Testament. If it says something that's kind of clunky or if it's kind of abrupt, I leave Leave it it. abrupt. And don't try to smooth it out. And don't try to use my theology to smooth it out so that it sounds a little bit better. Uh, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to leave it crunchy and clunky and not so Englishy. And make people feel that they're doing something different, and maybe get a fresh perspective. But I, I would say, for me, you know, I taught college students for 17 years. I taught a lot of students who came in on fire for Jesus, and by the second year, they were uh, cold water on Jesus, and they were trying to, you know, sow their wild oats and get drunk every weekend, and they wanted to have something about. The bible and religion and jesus that really challenged them and i found that jesus of nazareth my class that i taught there so much was was the touching point for many of these students who were reconstructing and they were willing to re-engage the christian faith on the basis of what they knew about jesus but it did not lead them directly back to the church and uh, they were sleeping in on Sunday morning, but really tried to follow Jesus during the week. And it was pretty healthy, uh, a, a healthy phase. So I'm hoping that maybe my translation of the Gospels will give some of these people courage to, uh, let's take a look at Jesus again. Yeah. Well, Dan Kimball, they, they love Jesus, but they don't like the church. Yeah. That, that idea is very present today. Yeah.
0: Well, I love, um, I just wrote down, it's a crunch. Uh, a crunchy and clunky translation. I feel like that should be your intro. Um, (laughs) Well, so with that, with the church, um, I know this is a bit of a departure, but I wanted to just have a moment to get to ask you about, like, you have been at the forefront of engaging in some of the toxicity that we're seeing in the church Mm -hmm. at large in North America. And I would be curious of, like, where why is there still hope? Why are you still engaged? Why do you still see the project of the church as having some value and worthwhile? Like, and where are you
1: seeing hope? Yeah, well, let me put this in a couple of ways. I hope I remember my ideas as we talk here. the, the first thing is, you know, church is first of all about a community. And the most painful part of people who walk away from the church is they lose their friends. Now, if you don't have any friends in the church and you're just bebopping into a mega church on Sunday to listen to the music and then going out to In-N-Out Burger, we don't have those in Chicago, Chicagoland, uh, but my grandson loves In-N-Out Burger. Um, you know, that, leaving church is not that big of a deal. So one thing I would say is I have found my friends and my close Um, trusted fellow followers of Jesus in the church. So that's one reason I haven't left this. But the primary reason is when I was a seminary student, I went through college student, seminary student, I went through a several year process of deconstruction. And when I got to seminary, I knew what I didn't believe, but I did not know what I did believe Hmm. My first class, 745 AM, NT610, Synoptic Gospels with Walter Liefeld, was about the Synoptic Gospels, And in that class, I feel like it was the first time in my life I encountered Jesus as a real human being. And, And that right there completely revitalized my faith. Now, it took five to 10 years for me to come to terms with everything I was reconstructing. But um, I've been a critic of the church and of theologies that lack the, um, the front staging of Jesus on the platform. So if it's a systematic theology, it's pretty easy to walk away from. Mm -hmm. And I have studied, Mike, you may know this, Uh, I have studied stories of apostasy and written about why people walk away from the faith. I did not see one person ever walk away from the Christian faith because of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget reading the famous story of Charles Templeton, who was a rival to Billy Graham, who, when he was like 85 years old, near the end of his life, someone, a reporter, asked him what he missed about Christianity, and he started to cry, says, I miss Jesus. Well, that right there, that that is something that kept my faith alive in spite of some of the nonsense that I've seen in churches. Uh, you have to have a little bit of resilience to put up with what uh, my daughter and I and my wife have put up with over the last four years because of the church called Tove. Uh, that for at one point, for about 18 months, Mike, we got anywhere from three to five stories a week from people wow. in churches yeah. experiencing almost entirely power abuses. And, you know, I worried a little bit about Laura. But it, it, she seemed to be very resilient about it. Um, and Chris, I think, has become a warrior against this stuff because of what we've been through in the last four years. But... Um, my my commitment to Jesus, my love for Jesus has been so so much more significant than the stories I hear that I feel like I can come right back at them and say, but you're so far from what Jesus wants us to be and what he is like. So I can use him against them, almost not as a weapon and weaponizing Jesus, but he exposes them for the toxicities that they're bringing to the church. So um, community in Jesus, that's what, that's what keeps me going. And are there like, I'm not
0: looking for like specific churches, but general spaces that are giving you hope for like with all of the junk that you're hearing, are there some like spaces that it's like this kind of place, the kinds of things that are happening in these kinds of churches are?
1: Well, you know, I teach pastors. And um, a lot of, well, almost everybody's in, w- involved in church work. And I meet a lot of wonderful people that I think are doing a good job. They're Tove, you know, they're not quite Mr. Rogers, but they're Tove. But um, I find hope. I know this is strange and I've, uh, I've always sort of gravitated toward this group of people. I find hope in the deconstructors. Hmm. Um. Yeah, they could be really frustrating and people in the church can get really irritated. They think, oh, the next thing they're going to be universalists and they're going to vote Democrat. You know, they, they're, they're, some of the conservatives get really whacked out and wigged out about these people. But I find the deconstructors that I encounter to be some of the most honest faith people that I've ever met in my life. They, they look at this and they say, I don't like that violence. They look at the story of Jefferson and they say, I think that is awful. And then there's, you know, some of the old godly type good people there. They want to try to explain it away. And so I think this is an awful story. And if you don't see that, I don't know what the problem is here. And I don't know that we need that, that the, that this story needs us to explain it in a better way than the author wrote it. And, but I find the, deconstructors at one time a lot of them were emerging people and you Mm -hmm. know all about the emerging they were sort of the same way they were asking questions that were difficult pushing corners that people pushing into corners that people you know opening the envelope where other people weren't willing to i i loved that i thought i i want to listen at times it get it can get annoying and i don't like when it gets trendy you know i'm just a I just want to be a pain in the ass to people and that's the way I'm going to operate. Uh, That's, that's not helpful. That's not helpful to me, you know? Uh, But when they're really asking questions, then I I just love it. I think, you know, this is an opportunity for them to start exploring things that could really lead to some, some insights. I love that so much. It's one of the
0: things I've always appreciated about you. And I thought that you were saying, uh, when you're saying I just want to be a pain in the ass, I thought you were referring to yourself and no. not to deconstruct when they want to be a pain. When they in want the to, because I w- a friend of mine sent me a um, a screenshot yesterday of a uh, of a tweet that I think somebody had asked you something like, "Do you like John MacArthur or Beth Moore, what are your thoughts on them, or something?" and <laughs> and you just simply wrote back like, "I like Beth Moore."
1: I love Beth Moore. I love
0: Beth Moore. And um, my response to my friend was, "I was like, he's really salty. I like that."
1: Well, it it turned into a bit of a, some people were really griping about me. Like I'm not loving. I thought, you know, I really didn't think of it that way. I didn't think, I mean, I'm not a big fan of John MacArthur, but you know, I think he's a Christian most of the time. Some days (laughs) I don't, Um, but uh, I really like Beth Moore. So I just said, I just, I just said that I didn't, I didn't even think that people would say, Oh, he doesn't like John MacArthur. Well, some people immediately read that and, someone said, do you love John MacArthur today? I said, of course. So I, it probably wasn't salty enough, but, uh, uh, I was, I did. I said to Chris yesterday, I said, I could have said sometimes
0: (laughs) (laughs) I probably would have been honest. Yeah, yeah uh well genuinely scott you're such a gift you it's been such a gift to to know you some and to interact throughout the years and beyond that you're such a gift to the church i'm really grateful for you and for your voice and um i'm really excited for people to get their hands on this new testament translation so i can't wait for it to come out and i can't wait i've been reading it as a pdf i can't wait to have like an actual tangible yeah, copy to me be able to too through.
1: i'm with you and are you still running in those shoes that don't have shoes <laughs> no that's so funny that you remember that i
0: i don't i i wear real shoes when i run now
1: the first time i'd ever heard of anybody who had that you were telling i thought oh that's got to be weird yeah but then they got trendy
0: and i can't do the trendy thing
1: you're pretty trendy. you're still pretty trendy. oh thanks scott yeah thank you great to see you again mike good to see you too